the New Testament book of First Peter, near the end of your New Testament. First Peter, we're going to read the first 21 verses, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Then you see verse 24. All men are like grass 
and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Hope. It's the great motivator. Coaches know this. And if the team ever gets the idea that they've lost the game, that their opponent is too good, they're too far behind, well, it's just game over, isn't it, coaches? Uh, Because men and boys don't play their best when they think there's no hope of victory. And so a good coach calls a timeout or he huddles them together at halftime and he, he tries to keep hope alive. Come on, you guys. We can do this. We can play better. I've seen it in you. You've got what it takes to beat those guys. And if everybody gives 100% on every play, we can win this ball game. Good coaches are good motivators. And that's no small reason why they win ball games. He knows how to keep hope alive. And, and hope brings the best out in people. It gives them a reason to not give up, a reason to dig deeper, to make sacrifices, to work harder. Victory can be ours. Even so, hope is the great motivator in the Christian life. We simply don't live well without hope. And so we've come to study the last of the four graces that we're looking at. We've seen humility, faith, love, and now hope. We've defined hope as the confident expectation of future good, the hope that we find in the Bible, the confident expectation of future good. And from this definition, we notice two things about hope. Number one, it's certainty. The believer's hope is not a hope-so thing, but it's a no-so thing. It's being confident of something. It's being sure of a good thing that is expected. And so it's a certain thing because it's grounded on certainties like God himself and his word of which we've just been singing and reading. It's certain. And then we saw its future orientation. Hope is forward-looking. It's, it's expecting something. It's expecting future good. Now, we're going to see these things, these two points, uh, over and over. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 if you're not already there. It will help uh, for you to have your Bibles open and to follow along Peter's uh, tight logic uh, in the passage. But it begins where I'm going to begin is verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Thanks be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice this morning the living hope. That's what we're looking at today, that our hope is a living hope. And the first point I want to point out is that our living hope comes through being born again. You see that in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. What has brought us into this living hope? It's it's a new birth that has brought us in. When a baby is born into this world, her parents might have great hopes 
for her. But this living hope is not something that all people have uh, just by being born. Rather, it's something that people only get by being born again, by having a second birth, a spiritual birth, being birthed by God into a living relationship with him. We're born again into this living hope. And it is nothing less than the hope of eternal life. This living hope that the new birth brings us into. It's the confident expectation of future good. That that death is no longer the end of all my good things. But that on my deathbed I can die with a living hope that my best days, my best life lies beyond death. In front of me. And will meet me the moment after I breathe my last. And then it gets even better at Christ's return when he comes and raises my body from the dead and reunites my body and soul to live with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth along with all of his people. That's a living hope. A living hope. What a gracious gift it is. To live every day with that kind of confident expectation. Bright hope for tomorrow. Thrilling us with joy and motivating us uh, to go on. To not quit in the way heavenward. A hope that will not disappoint us. Now notice this new birth and its living hope is a great mercy of God. In his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope. It's sovereign mercy. Uh, It's God having mercy on whom he will have mercy, Romans chapter 9. You see, I didn't ask for this new birth. Dead people don't ask. Uh, I didn't seek it. I didn't desire it. Dead people don't desire or seek. And before this new birth, I was spiritually dead. I was dead toward God. I was dead toward his presence. He was out of thought, out of mind. I was dead toward his authority. I had no heart for him, his laws, his gospel, his son. And it was then, while I was dead in transgressions and sins, that he made me alive. He gave me a new birth into a living hope. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. Like the rest, we were spiritually dead. We we lived according to this world, according to the devil, and according to our own sinful desires and thoughts. We were children of wrath. But God, who is rich in what? In mercy. Just like Peter says, in his great mercy. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. Dead one moment, made alive the next. Now suddenly God is everywhere in my universe. And I live unto him. And, and he and his presence means everything in his word and, and his, his promises, his authority, his laws, his gospel, his Christ. I'm now alive. A mercy, a great mercy. So Let's see, first of all, then, this morning, that this living hope comes through being born again. Let's praise him, then, for this great mercy that we're no longer dead, but we're alive to the greatest reality in the universe. God is. God is. Secondly, this morning, 
Just three points, I believe. The second one is that our living hope depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see that in our text. Verse 3, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So according to this verse, our living hope depends upon a living Savior who's been raised from the dead. And because he's alive, my hope's alive. Can you face death with confident expectation of good on the other side of death? Right now, if you should die today, you have a strong confidence that you're expecting good on the other side of death. That's what we're talking about, this living hope of eternal life after death. Death's the great killer of people's hopes, brings them all to a screeching halt if their hopes are set in this world. And it's by this this fear of death that Satan holds the world captive all their lives to the fear of death. So if you have no answer for death, you have no basis for hope. No basis for that confident expectation of, of future good. And if no hope in death, you have no hope in life. For death will cut down your hopes and bring them to nothing. Your hopes will be dashed. They'll, they'll just wither up and come to nothing like this, the grass, the flower. The trees, the leaves that fade and fall. Brothers and sisters, if if nothing else this morning, we need to pity those living without God and without hope in this world and to recognize what a precious hope we have and to take it to this world without hope. I don't think I appreciate my living hope as much as I should. And And part of that's just the fact that I've had it for so long. Something that will help us appreciate the living hope that we have of eternal life on the other side of death is is just spending 10 to 15 minutes reading about the prevailing views of the the Greeks and the Romans in the time when Christ walked the earth. What were the views of, of, of death and the afterlife into which Christ came with life and immortality brought to light through his gospel? Oh, it was, a, it was a dark, fearful thing that Satan held people captive with. A variety of ideas, but none of them cheery. Homer's Odyssey describes the common Greek thought of the day about death and the afterlife. At the moment of death, the soul left the body like a puff of wind and went into the underworld. Literally deep down under the earth was their view. And there the Greek god Hades reigned over countless drifting crowds of shadowy figures, disembodied spirits, spirits without bodies, mere shadows of those who once lived. It wasn't a happy place. The ghost of the great hero Achilles says that he would rather be a poor serf back on earth than to be Lord of all the dead in the underworld. At best, it was dark, a dark and gloomy, shadowy existence forever. And at worst, it included punishments for wrongs done on earth. And if the dead were not properly buried, well, then their souls might be cursed just to wander restlessly between the upper world and the lower world, not belonging to either one. 
And so honoring the dead and following the prescribed rituals of death was critical. There was also the belief that the unhappy souls of the underworld could return to this world as ghosts, to to, to wander among the living, causing misfortune or bringing good luck. So fear of those ghost souls drove the living to perform all kinds of prescribed rituals to ward off these uh, ghosts and to keep them satisfied. Again, you see the slavery in which Satan was holding the world because of their fear of death. Some in this time also believe the souls of the dead got stuck in the never-ending cycle of reincarnation. And all of this is so pitifully distant from the living hope that we have as believers of a literal resurrection of our bodies and a, a real reuniting of soul and body perfected to be with Christ and all his people forever and ever in a perfect world. Even the Old Testament view of death and the afterlife was was shadowy compared to the light that Jesus Christ brought to death and the afterworld by his resurrection from the dead. And so according to 1 Peter 1.3, the reason we have a living hope is that we have a living Savior. Our hope is alive because Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. He went to the cross with our sins placed upon him. He suffered and died, paying the the penalty for our sins. And then his heavenly father raised him to life, proving to one and all that he accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And because he's accepted, we're accepted with God. Eternal life is now ours through faith and repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the ground of our living hope. Paul as well saw this, and he spoke of it throughout the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of those longest chapters, uh, long chapters in the Bible. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says, we're to be pitied more than all people. No real hope, a living hope, reaches past death, past this life, into the next life, And that's what Jesus died and rose again to give us. We we, we see the effect of this living hope so clearly and and the place of the resurrection of Christ in it so clearly in that passage in Luke chapter 24. You remember it, but let me just walk us through it again. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday, the third day. After the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, two disciples of Jesus were walking from Jerusalem down to a village of Emmaus, some seven miles journey. And as they walked along, they were talking with each other about everything that that had just happened. And as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, just risen this very morning, Jesus himself came and walked along beside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And so he asked them, as if a stranger, asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along the way? And they stood still, their faces downcast. Don't forget that. We're going to return to it. They're they're sad, they're gloomy, their chins were dragging, their faces said everything. 
They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. Don't you just love it? Jesus is plain stupid, plain ignorant to draw their hearts out. What things, he asks. Oh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied to Jesus. He was a prophet. He, he was a prophet. Mark that tense. He was a prophet. Uh, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But the chief priests and the, our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But, but we had hoped. We, we had hoped that, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Sometimes everything hangs on the tense of a verb. And that's the way it is here. He was a prophet, past tense. Inference, he is no more. We had hoped, past tense, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Had hoped. Oh, how hopes were riding high. Our hopes were, were, were just bubbling over. I mean, this... This man did something that no man ever had done before. He said things that no mere man had ever said before. He healed every kind of sickness and disease. He brought uh, even the dead to life. He spoke to the stormy winds and waves and they obeyed him. Death, demons, diseases, they all obeyed his voice. He spoke with such knowledge and authority and yet with such grace. Offering mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Offering eternal life to all who repent and believe on him. Oh, and it was just a week ago, today, that he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and the multitude threw down their coats to, to make a, a path for him as he entered the city. And they waved palm branches and were shouting joyfully, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And how we had hoped that he was this long-promised Messiah King who was coming as Savior to redeem his people. Well, what happened to those bright hopes? Well, they died when Christ died. They saw him arrested. They saw him condemned and stripped and whipped and nailed to a cross by Romans. They saw him dying in weakness, taken down, dead from the cross, and buried. And with him... Their hopes were buried. We had hoped. Oh, but hope springs eternal. And they say, but, but, but you know, this is now the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb to check it out and found it just as the women had said. But him, him they did not see. And then this total stranger that they had just met said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they arrived in Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going farther, but they strongly urged him, stay with us, stay with us as the day's almost over. And he did. And when at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened. And they knew it was Jesus. And just as quickly he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way? And opened the scriptures to us. How do we miss that? How do we miss the fact that Messiah must suffer first? We only saw the glory passages. Oh, but he was there. He was wounded for our transgressions. Our beloved Isaiah, the prophet. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Oh, it was there and we missed it. His death and resurrection from the dead. But now suddenly their hopes have resurrected. Their hopes are alive again. Up from the grave he arose. And when he arose, their hopes arose. We have a living Savior, so we have a living hope. And their joy was resurrected as well. That sadness, that gloom turned to gladness. And they couldn't get back to Jerusalem fast enough. Even though it was night, they reversed course and went those seven miles much faster than the first seven and got back to the others to tell them what they had just had happen. But they had something to tell them. They said, it's true, the Lord is alive and he's appeared to Simon. And then they spilled their story about meeting him along the way. And while they're still talking to the twelve gathered there in that upper room, Jesus himself suddenly appears and says, peace be unto you. And showed him his hands and his wounds and his side and, and proved to them that he was indeed alive evermore from the dead. What a hope we have. What a hope. We have a living Savior. He went down into death and came out the other side. And it was these disciples, now with a living Savior and with a living hope, that went into this world without hope and risked life and limb to proclaim to the world this hope of eternal life, this hope of of good things, future things, on the other side of death, indeed eternal life. For all who trust in the Savior and repent of their sins. So this living hope is certain because it rests on the certainty of Christ's resurrection. It doesn't rest on a, on a Greek myth. No, it rests on a fact, a historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead. Showed himself to many, over 500 at one time. And it's not only certain hope, because it rests on certainties, but it's also a forward-looking hope. Now we're back in 1 Peter chapter 4. Because we're we're asking, what is the hope? What is it that, that this living hope hopes for? What does it confidently expect in the future? And this is our third point. I guess I've got four. Uh, our third point, 
it, it rests upon an inheritance that's waiting for us on the other side of death. So point three, our living hope is the confident expectation of an eternal inheritance. Verse three says, or verse four says, uh, we've not only been uh, born again into a living hope, but also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So that inheritance is yours now in hope, in expectation. It will one day be yours in experience. There is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. And what faith sees, hope expects. Eagerly, confidently expects to one day enjoy. The hope of an eternal inheritance. It it never perishes like the hopes of the wicked, which all perish at at the point of death. It never spoils like a piece of fruit that gets old and and then goes bad and useless. No, not our eternal inheritance. And it never fades like a piece of fabric in the sun. I dressed my scarecrow up in a brilliant red uh, IU uh, windbreaker. And I scared many a crow out of my garden for a season or two. And then the sun went to work on my bright red coat. I was looking at it yesterday. It's more like gray now. Hardly a a hint of pink, maybe. I mean, the crows land on it to spy what they want in the garden now. What happened? It faded. Not our inheritance. You won't be there for a week like everything else new in this world. It fades and, and, and then feel like, oh, the joys uh, faded. Yeah, we've been here a week. We've been here a year. We've been here 10,000 years. and Things are getting, you know, old hat. Never fades. We'll have surprise after surprise of joy and eternal pleasures at his right hand. Never perish, spoiling or fading. And then the certainty of this hope. The certainty of this hope is held before us because he says it's kept. It's kept in heaven for you who are God's people, who are the elect, who have come to Christ by faith. It's kept. The word there could be translated. It's reserved for you. Now, you know what reserved seating is. Those seats are kept for you. So you don't have to go early and fight the crowd to get a good seat. No, you, you can just show up for the concert one minute before it begins. And though people are packing into the place and many are waiting to get in, you come to those seats and nobody's there. Why? Because they've been reserved for you and no one else. And that's the way your inheritance is in heaven. It's reserved. It's kept there by this living Christ who's preparing a place for you and it's yours and your name's on it and and it's being held for you. Every one of God's people reserved in heaven, this inheritance. And, And not only is your inheritance being kept for you, you are being kept for it, which is what he goes on to say in verse five. 
that you are kept for it. You're shielded by God's power, kept by God's power, guarded by God's power through faith. You see the certainty. Okay, so it's waiting for me there, but how do I know I'm going to make it to sit down in, in those seats in heaven? Because God is keeping you for it just as he's keeping it for you. His mighty power guarantees that everyone in whom he's begun the good work of salvation, he will complete it. And so by his great power, he's keeping you for that inheritance being reserved for you. Which is what? Well, it goes on to say in verse 5, the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's future, you see, future salvation. God's begun the work in, of salvation now in us. He's continuing it. But there's a future work of salvation. He says, that's ready to be revealed in the last time when Christ returns. We'll see. So God's own power is keeping you for it and keeping it for you. And then verse 4, or verse 6, the next verse says, in this you greatly rejoice. In, in what? In this eternal life this, that's awaiting you, this, this inheritance in heaven. In this you greatly rejoice. And that brings us to the last point this morning. Our living hope is a joyful hope. Our living hope is a joyful hope. If I knew that, or if I know that next week I, believe, I begin a, a month-long vacation to my favorite spot in the world with my favorite people in the world. The, the, the mere joyful anticipation of Saturday morning when I take off would motivate me and fill me already with joy this next week. In, in the hardest of my duties, in the, the, the most discouraging griefs, I, I would have encouragement. Why? I, I'm already letting the joy of what's coming in the weekend spill over into this life. And that's what Peter's telling us about this living hope that we have. It is so good that it doesn't wait. The joy doesn't wait. But we can partake of it right now in hope by the confident expectation that that's, that's being reserved for me and I'm being kept for it. And one day that will be reality. And right now, I am rejoicing in hope, in hope of the glory of God. And so as hope thrives, our joy thrives. And notice that this joyful hope is not the kind of joy that the world has that can only survive if circumstances are hunky-dory, just like you like them. No, rather, this joyful hope survives in the midst of great trials and grief. He goes on to say in this, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, this coming salvation. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There is a way to maintain joy in trials and grief. It's the grace of hope. It's a joyful hope and it carries joy with you, whatever your circumstances, trials and griefs. You see, hope is the great motivator to joy. And verse 7 tells us why we can, why joy can live on in trials. It's because of our forward-looking hope in what those trials are accomplishing. Even as Pastor Jason prayed, 
Well, what are those joys or those, those, those trials of many kinds, the grief? What's it, what's it accomplishing? You see, that's future. Not, not, not what do they look like now? They look ugly, fearful, painful. But, but what, what are they doing? What, what's the future good to be expected out of these griefs and trials? Verse 7. Well, these trials of many kinds have, have come so that your faith. Ah, oh, yes, your faith. And then he puts a big parenthesis to show you how precious that faith is. Your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. In other words, it's more valuable than gold that has been refined by fire is pure gold. And, and that faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice the two future things that hope is expecting from trials. Two good outcomes that are yet future. Number one, that your faith may prove genuine. Now, what's that worth? To arrive before the judge and to have a faith that is proven genuine. You know that not all faith is is saving faith. There's temporary faith. There's all kinds of faith. Just read the story of the, the, the four soils in which Jesus sows the seed. No, not all faith is saving faith. Oh, I want to be sure that I have the genuine faith. I want to be sure that it is proven genuine in that day. I don't want to get to the end of my journey and find that my faith was not saving faith. Okay, well then, this genuine faith, it it always endures to the end. So how does God strengthen faith so that it will endure to the end? Well, He's got a tailor-made trial, and he brings it into your life, which calls you into the gymnasium of faith to exercise your faith. And by faith, looking beyond that trial to the God and promiser, faith is is strengthened. The muscle of faith is strengthened. And and now you, you have more strength to endure the next trial and the next one. And the next one is working, persevering faith in you that you might... Arrive at the end of the journey and have that faith proven to be genuine, saving faith. He uses trials that your faith may be proved genuine. And and secondly, he uses trials that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the last day. That your faith may result. That's forward looking. That's again the end result of a tried and proven faith. What is it? Praise first. Three things. Praise, glory, and honor. Praise from your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. When you stand before him and he praises you. And says well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Come and enter the joy of your master. Now, that's worth going through a few trials to receive, isn't it? But, but, but we won't keep going unless we know it's coming. And so, so faith and hope are expecting and seeing future praise coming from the Savior. What else? Glory. Second, glory. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
as Christ shares his glory with us and we're made like him and we shine with the glory of Jesus Christ reflecting from us. Praise, glory, and honor. Hope is expecting some good in the future. It's expecting praise, glory, and honor. Do you know that this God that we're serving has said, those who honor me, I will honor? Our nation's highest medal of honor will will look like a stone in that day compared to the honors that Jesus Christ pours upon his people just to belong to that blood-bought bride of Christ. I am his and he is mine. Oh, what honor that will give us to belong to Jesus as his beloved bride for eternity. You see, we've not sought the praise, glory, and honor of this world. We've been seeking the praise, glory, and honor that is coming from our Savior. And that hope will never be disappointed. That's the coming result of your faith that right now is being tried and pressed with grief. But joy can stay alive in that grief as long as it sees the result. And so your great rejoicing, you see, isn't, isn't somehow scuttled and hindered by trials. It's deepened. Because what does it do? It forces you to look beyond the trial. Look beyond the grief and say, what's, what's this working? What's he doing? What's the good in store? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has given to those who love him. James 1.12. When we see Christ, it's when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know he's coming. He's not revealed yet. He's still hidden in heaven. You don't see him yet, but every eye will see him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what praise and glory and honor will be when having heaped our praises on him, he then heaps praise, glory, and honor upon us. Forward-looking hope keeps us going. And though you've not seen him, verse 8, you love him. That's the role of faith. Faith sees the one that loves you and you love him in response. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Faith. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, that's not talking about the joy of heaven. It's talking about right now in the midst of trials. You are filled with an inexpressible. I can't put it into words, my joy. It's too deep. It's too precious. Glorious joy. Why, verse 9, finishes our text. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right now, you're in the process of receiving the goal of your faith. You have put your faith in Jesus for what? For eternal life. And it begins now. And you're enjoying right now present salvation, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And, And already... You've got inexpressible joy just in fellowship with with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And and yet that that goal is not yet here in full. The reason we can have this inexpressible and glorious joy is that we are presently receiving what we will finally receive, which is salvation completed. The goal of of our faith. 
the end of it all. Salvation, full, fullness of salvation. So, application, what about your joy? It's an indicator of, of the condition of your hope, isn't it? We're given something of a diagnostic tool then in this relationship of joy and hope. Little joy often means dim hope. A strong hope uh, means uh, that in this you greatly rejoice. So just as we need to grow in humility and faith and in love, we need to grow in hope. Right down at the roots of joy, we find it's drawing strength from hope. But where there's no hope, there's no joy. So we need to, we need to do something about our hope. We need joy. Joy and hope, this, this joyful hope is, gives us stamina. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and, and, and hope is that confident expectation that motivates us to keep going and not quit, knowing what's ahead. You know, the Lord Jesus was here, and he showed us that a man can endure a lot if he has hope, hope set before him, who for the joy set before him. Hasn't, he's hanging on a cross. He's feeling the Father's hidden face, the wrath of God. He's not feeling anything good in the way of emotions and, and, and physical feelings. He's, he's going through grief like no one has ever gone through. And trials like no one will ever suffer in this life. And yet, for the joy set before him, because of that joy that's awaiting him, what did he do? He endured the cross, that cross. And, and he despised the shame of the cross as a thing of naught. It's nothing compared to the joy that will be mine. And for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured. That's the hope of Jesus. In, the, in what faith Jesus by faith saw was coming, hope expected. And his, as his hope was strong, he partook of something of that joy that kept him on the cross all the way to the end when he could say, it is finished. Mission accomplished. And he dismissed his spirit to the Father. So, so what are you doing to keep hope alive? That's the question then. It's critical. This is a critical grace. We don't, we don't do well any more than that seventh grade football team doesn't do well without hope. Hope. Well, Peter tells us, look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Here it is. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, so the great joy that is set before us is, is what's going to happen when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he comes again in power and glory. What's going to happen? Well, he's going to be given something. Well, I've already been receiving. Uh, I've received new birth. I'm justified. I'm adopted. I'm being sanctified. I I have the Holy Spirit with him. I've been receiving all kinds of of life and breath and everything else from him. That's why if you're going to be a Christian, you better get used to receiving. Because God is the great giver. And, And he doesn't give stingily, but he gives plentifully. And he's just started his giving. 
It's goodness and mercy all our days here. And then to dwell in the house of the Lord. That's where the buckets come out of blessing, of goodness, of grace. Notice, what, 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 are, we, what are we going to receive? We're going to receive grace when Jesus Christ is revealed. Which means I don't belong to live with Jesus forever. That's, that's grace. That's his undeserved favor. It means all those rewards, that praise that he gives me, that, that glory, that honor, I've not merited that. He's going to give me grace in that day. All the rewards of the righteous are rewards of grace. Now that day's coming. And that's how it will happen for you, dear brothers and sisters. As you are running the race, looking to Jesus, all your faith is in him. That day will come. And he will give you praise, glory, and honor. Grace. So what's the application, Peter? What should we do? Set your hope fully on that grace to be given you. Don't look back. No, no. Look forward. Set your hope. It's, it's a, if you were flying an airplane, or if, you set your course on that goal. Again, it's the goal of your faith. You, you set your hope on that. Do it fully. Don't set your hope on things of this world that will disappoint. Set your hope on something that's certain to happen. And as you set your hope there, well, you will be given joy. You'll go through the trials with endurance and joy until Christ is revealed and heaps upon you grace upon grace upon grace. It's not easy to keep hope alive in this world full of trouble, sin and woe. So let's encourage one another with what's coming. Let's remind each other. Just wait a little longer, brother. Heaven's just around the bend. Don't quit now, sister. Hope in God. You'll never be disappointed. We're almost home. Lift up your head. Your redemption is drawing nigh. The story, and then we're done, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 11. The Israel's enemies, the Ammonites, came and besieged the Israelite city of Jabesh-Gilead. And they, they surrounded and cut off all their supplies coming in. It was just a matter of time of starving them out. So, so Jabesh-Gilead pleaded for a peace treaty with the Ammonites. And they said on one condition, that we gouge out the right eye of every one of you. It's not a happy prospect, but at least we'll be alive. So they said, okay. The elders of Jabesh said, give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. And you can take out our right eyes. For some reason, they agreed to that. Obviously didn't think they were going to stir up anybody to come to their help. So the messengers went out and told what the threat to Jabesh Gilead was. They came to Gibeah, the city of Saul, just before he was made king. And the whole city 
responded with weeping, with concern. And Saul gathered together 330,000 men and sent this message back to the besieged city of Jabesh. By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. And when the messengers brought back this word to the besieged city of Jabesh, it says they were elated. We don't use that word often. I looked it up. Overjoyed, ecstatic, jubilant. And I say, what? Why? You're still surrounded. Those guys want your right eyeballs. That threat is still real. The clock is ticking and you will soon be one-eyed monsters. If what they want, they get. Why jubilant? Why overflowing with joy now? Because we have hope. Yes, we're in the same circle, but but we, we now have hope. We didn't have hope. But we have hope that help is on the way. Yes, but it's not here yet. Oh, I know, but but the messenger said 330,000 are coming. And right in the midst of the threat of losing an eye and losing their freedom, they had hope. They were elated, a joyful hope, a living hope. That Saul and 330,000 would come and rescue them. And that hope to them was enough to rejoice in, greatly rejoice in. Now, brothers and sisters, you get the lesson. The threat against us was more than a right eye. It was body and soul to be thrown into hell forever and ever. And outside of Christ, that threat still stands on every single human being in the universe. Obey and live, disobey and be damned. The only refuge is to take refuge in in the Savior. And and he said he's coming back. He's already begun the the salvation. But but the final deal to rescue us out of this cursed world and all of its troubles is coming. And what he's going to save us to. Is that not worth having a little bit of joy spilled over now? To rejoice now in hope, to start celebrating now in hope of what's coming. A living hope that rests upon the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A Jesus who said, because I live, you too will live. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. That's the kind of confident expectation we have of future good on the other side of death when our Lord Jesus returns. Friend, do you have that certain hope that enables you to face death with confidence? If not, I invite you to this Savior. He receives one and all, no matter who you are, what you've done, if you come and turn from your way and trust in him. You can go home rejoicing that you're right with God and looking forward to that day that will be fullness of joy, eternal pleasures in the presence of Christ at his right hand. Come to this Savior.
Well, let's stand and sing. For you believers, you can sing this song with confidence. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. And, and he died for me and he lives for me. And that gives great hope and joy and endurance to me. So let's sing, My Hope is in the Lord. Take the joy of that living hope out into this world that is without God and without hope. And always be ready to give a reason for that joyful hope that's yours. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace that comes from believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.